Hello, everybody. Turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, one of the things we're going to see today initially is how we are not to seek our own glory in doing God's work. The picture you see on the board is a great Bible teacher, a bit of a mystic, though, uh, by the name of A.W. Tozer, Uh, who writes a quote from him, The glory of God always comes at the sacrifice of self. Do not seek your own glory when performing God's work, uh, or at least what you perceive to be God's work. A great example of this is a man who's in the flashes on the pages of Scripture just for a few lines in Acts chapter 8 by the name of Simon. He was a magician, Simon the Magician. He wowed the people with his magic arts. Uh, they entitled him, the, they claimed him to be the great power of God. Uh, his, and I'm sure he was okay with that title. It seems that he accepted it gladly, the great power of God. His magic acts, which I would assume to be many, um, uh, made him rich and renowned, and he lived in Samaria. When the gospel came to Samaria by the, by the person of Philip, uh, the apostle Philip, um, uh, around uh, when Simon heard the gospel, he believed and was baptized. And then he followed Philip around and saw Philip perform many miracles by which Simon was wowed. Now remember, he's a magician, and now he's seeing actual miracles. And he's just so impressed by this. And as the gospel spreads in Samaria, then Peter and John, the apostles, come up. They're in Jerusalem. They come up to Samaria. And uh, what they do is they lay hands on people. Now, when they laid hands on the believers, the believers received the Holy Spirit. Uh, and there's a lot of controversy about why that is, but I, I personally think it's to give, the, give authority to those apostles When they laid their hands on the believers in Samaria, they received the Holy Spirit. This is manifested by them speaking in tongues and such as they did at Pentecost. Simon the magician sees this and he offers Peter and John money to give him the power. He asks if he can receive the power to give the Holy Spirit to whom he wants. And he offers them money for it. Of course, he's sternly rebuked by Peter warned by Peter that the wrath of God is going to squish him. Uh, and uh, Simon, it seems that Simon responded to that positively. And this all happens. You can read it in Acts chapter 8. It's real quick. Uh, but <clears throat> So I introduced Simon in this principle. Why did Simon want the ability to give people the Holy Spirit? Is it because he loved people? I mean, what a great gift, right? If I could go up to, you know, to a believer and give them the Holy Spirit if they didn't have it. If, if I did that for the right reason, by which the apostles certainly did, then you know, it, would, it would have been uh, quite the gift. But why did Simon want it? And him offering money to buy it is, is indicative of what people do. People do it in Christianity all the time in that they they go on mission trips or maybe they're evangelizing people or they're doing works in the church and they want, and what do they seek after is the glory to self. This must not ever happen. If you have evangelized, like today you saved 100 people by witnessing somehow. Uh, Say you're Billy Graham, a type, and you had an evangelistic meeting and thousands came to the Lord. If you gave yourself credit for it, you'd be way, way out of line. And that's exactly what Paul's going to first um, reveal to us in this passage. So we're in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. And uh, we're going to pray now and thank God for this in his word and for this passage. And as we know, every principle and every line in the word of God is necessary for us to comprehend and see our Lord, and the plan that he has for our lives. So with humility and reverence, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word and thank you for this passage. Thank you for this book that you have preserved, um, meaning not only the Bible, but First Thessalonians that we're studying We thank you for the principles in it that reveal to us the great work that can be done by believers who are faithful to you. Uh, 
we are called to do many works and to do many great things, but never do we take credit for it because the power, ability, and wisdom all flow from you. You use us as instruments when we allow ourselves to be used. But we are conscious conscious of this fact and that we don't become puppets in your hand, but willing participants in that which we know and learn. That's why it's so important for us to learn your word, Father. We understand that. And so as we turn to your word again, we ask that through your spirit we may comprehend and have your word truly influence us. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, the passage in view here is 13 through 16 in in chapter 2. And today we'll just be able to deal with verse 13 because it's the important aspect of what is in verse 13, which is uh, the graciousness of the servant of God and how he or she gets that graciousness, which is by the word of God. And uh, that's all both of those aspects, which are very foundational to the Christian life are in verse 13. So he says, for this reason. Now, when Paul says for this reason, he means what he's written before. So that starts in chapter 2, verse 1, where Paul reveals his own work and his own sacrifice for the Thessalonians, and really for the whole world. Uh, The reason why Paul is so grateful that the Thessalonians have received God's word uh, in the proper manner, is that he is a, that's what he does. He's a servant of God himself. Paul will do anything. Paul did anything that he could up to giving his life away to give the gospel to people. And for the right reason. Paul is not elevating himself. He's not trying to be the great apostle. He is truly lo- truly in love with the gospel. And by that, he loves the human race. Because he loves God, he loves the human race, and he wants the human race saved. He wants Israel saved. And so he, his whole heart is for the fulfillment of God's plan in, the, in, the, in people's lives. And so that's why he's grateful. Right? So that, that, what he does as, uh, as a minister to Thessalonica is in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and then he says, because of this, or for this reason, we, so verse 13, for this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, meaning like this is from me, but for what it really is, that Greek word is really truly is, for what it truly is, the word of God which also performs its work in you who believe. And then in verses 14, 15, and 16, Paul's going to explain that they even did this in the midst of persecution, which persecution Paul has experienced, the people with him have experienced, and the churches in Jerusalem and Judea have experienced. And therefore, there's a whole, and we talked about this on Sunday, there's a whole group of people out in the world who hate the gospel, hate the Lord. And these are even nice people, but if they're, you know, generally, if they're not bothered, but you've all experienced this, if I may just go off here on a tangent, that to the nice neighbor who is, you know, easy to get along with generally, start talking to them about Jesus or start talking to them about the Bible and all of a sudden, they are not so nice anymore. You know, how many people are like, "Oh yeah, let me, I'll listen to that," or or are even polite about it? They just want you to shut up. So um, God has left us in a world where, you know, people will cause suffering upon us. If you follow the Lord Jesus, you're going to suffer, and that is a promise not just here in this passage, but in, throughout the Word of God, throughout the New Testament. But we're going to focus on verse 13. And the first thing is that Paul is thankful. Notice who he's thankful to. And notice that he's also constantly thankful. There's a a Greek adverb that he uses here. The word constantly in your translation is not just thrown in by the translators. It's an actual word that Paul uses in the Greek. And it does mean constantly. It means to be without ceasing. 
Paul was thankful constantly, but to whom? To God. Notice in the text, we also thanked you? No. We also constantly thank God that you received the word of God which you heard from us. You accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it truly is, the word of God. Paul is thankful constantly that they honored God for Paul's message. Paul's a fantastic teacher. He must be. Although the Corinthians said he wasn't. (laughs) They even spread rumors that Paul is kind of hard to listen to. We don't really like him, but I find that hard to believe. Someone who has the passion that Paul has for the truth. He's got to be an excellent teacher of the Word of God. And, you know, he's traveling all over the world. He's traveling all over the Roman Empire to deliver it at the cost of his life. And think how committed he is. When he shows up at your house, there's no church here yet. Well, there is now, but there's no building. They're underground like we are. Uh, But anyway, you know, when he teaches, it's amazing. And and so, you know, do they say, you know, did they give glory to Paul? And Paul is so grateful that they didn't. There was, a time, there was a time in Paul's ministry where he was being taken to Rome by ship, and the ship crashed at uh, the island, um, what was it? I can't remember off the top of my head. But uh, <clears throat> So anyway, Paul, is, he's, he gets on land, he, he's good, and uh, they built a fire on the seashore, and, and the people who were there who saw this, Paul reached into the wood, and a, a serpent, a snake came out. He didn't see it out of the wood pile, bit him on the arm, Everybody said, well, that's it. He's dead. And they assumed that he had, because they're superstitious people, they assumed that Paul committed some crime or he's a murderer. That's why, you know, he got his just desserts by the snake. But Paul didn't die at all. The, the venom had no effect on him. It was a miracle. So then they praised Paul as a god. They praised him as a god. And, uh, you know, you, and not only there, but I think it was also in Berea where they started, the people started sacrificing to Paul and Barnabas. They show up and give this message, and the people are like, that is awesome. Let's offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. And they couldn't believe it. They ran to the people and told them to stop. Paul never sought his own glory. I'm sure he was tempted to, like anybody would be. He's a human being. But he never sought it. And if, perhaps if he did, he, you know, you don't see it in Scripture. Now he's he's a sinner like the rest of us, but you know. So here's what he reveals, and he's sure to reveal this with the word constantly. He puts that in there purposely to tell us that look, we're always thankful for what uh, you know that people respond. Yeah, that's true. But really, who's he thankful to? He's thankful to God, and what Paul is thankful for is the work of God in people's lives. And that's what jazzes them. Now, think in our world, and sometimes in our own hearts, if we're honest with ourselves, what are we really grateful for? You know, what makes us grateful people and thankful people? Because if you're grateful, you're content. If you're grateful, you're happy. If you're grateful, you're at peace. All of those wonderful things that everybody wants all go together. What are we grateful for? And so often, we're just grateful for the things that we want if we get them. Our own personal desires, our own personal pleasures. Look, hey, we're all real here, yeah? I mean, it happens. You're a sinner, I'm a sinner. (laughs) As much as I know better, I fall into it just like anybody else. But the Word of God tells us to be constantly thankful or ceaselessly thankful to God. For what? What he's doing. I said, well, I looked at the news site today, and it doesn't look like God's doing anything. I'm a big fan of Trump, but he got arrested. I'm really mad. What is God doing in this world? He's doing mighty things. Always has. You know, what is unfortunate is a lot of Christians, I do mean Christians here, don't see the work of God in this world. And, that, and I think personally that's why they can get so wrapped up in, in current events, politics, 
and you know socioeconomic systems and uh, you know geopolitical maneuvers and all of that's going on all over the world and they get very uptight and wrapped up in it and I think because they don't really see the work of God in this world and say oh my God look at what's happening oh my God look at this and God says yeah no kidding I'm in I'm in charge right I haven't lost control of the world by the way. So Paul is always, so look around. I guess one of the things that Paul is teaching us here is to open your eyes and, and, and do this in prayer as well. Look around, ask God to show you where are you working in my, not just my life, but around me. But also ask for what he's doing in your life. Paul is always thankful for the work God is doing in people's lives. And Paul sees that work, and this is a very important point here for today, is that Paul sees the work because he does the work. Paul sees the work of God because he does God's work. Now, this it may sound counterintuitive, but even if someone else is doing the work, God's work, I mean, God's service in his church to others, I will see that if I myself and one who invests in people's lives as God wants me to, as he wills me to, then I will actually see the work that others do. If I don't, if I'm of the many believers who do not invest in other people's lives and are pretty much self-absorbed, when God works in another person's life, I don't really see it. Because my eyes are on myself. How do I I see... (coughs) the work in others that God is doing if I'm absorbed with my own life. Isn't it interesting that we would have to be commanded to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep? We're commanded to do that. And why is that? Because so often people are, and believers included, will be jealous when someone else rejoices. And will put down and kind of ridicule when someone else is weeping. And, uh, and, and so if, if we invest in others, then we actually see the work of God in other people's lives. And that's why Paul sees it. Paul sees it very well because he's someone who does that. He's not self-absorbed. If a believer is, absor- is absorbed with self in their own life, then that's all they're going to see. Remember when Jesus said, if you, uh, if you give to be noticed, if you pray to be noticed, you will be. And then he said, you have your reward in full. But if in silence, in private, you go with your father into your inner room, you will, you will be rewarded. And that reward is because, say for instance that, you know, you, if you're going to be someone who prays legitimately and a lot, it's, you're someone who really does seek after God. And your reward is you're going to find him. Now, if I'm the type of believer who just, you know, prays when I, you know, when all hell's breaking loose or something, and I, I don't really pray, I don't really seek God because, again, I'm absorbed with this, then I don't really find him the way that God wills me to. And you have, well, just like you said, you have your reward in full. You wanted yourself, you got it. The New Testament is full of entreaties and commands to do for others. How many of these are there? I was going to slap a list of them on the board. There's just too many, and I know I'd run out of time for what I want to do. But, you know, we know this. Consider others as more important than yourself. That we're perfectly knit together in Ephesians 4, and we're to supply one another. We're to build up one another in love. Uh, We're to uh, instruct one another and serve one another to the building up of the body of Christ, also Ephesians 4. Uh, We're to use our spiritual gifts in the service of others. We're to give, we're to forgive, and on and on and on. Multiple, multiple throughout the New Testament entreaties and commands to do for others, consider others, comfort others, exhort others, serve others, and invest in others. God has created, therefore, something special in the body of Christ. What are we? Well, uh, the scripture says that we're a kingdom of priests. The scripture says that we're brothers and sisters in the body of whom the head is Jesus Christ. The scripture says that we're the royal family of God and that we bear God's name. 
And it's therefore, he is working in each one of us the manifest result of what it means, what will occur when we supply one another with what each needs. And again, our drive here, just like Paul said uh, just, just before this, uh, in verse 12, 1 Thessalonians 2.12, is we want others to walk in a manner worthy of God. That's why he did all that he did. So that they and all others that he could minister to would find the way to walk in a manner worthy or to live in a manner worthy of God. <clears throat> when you invest in others, you'll see God's work in the ministry of others, whether it's your work or others' work. You will see it. You will notice it. What if you don't? Then you don't see God's work in this world. And if you don't see God's work, what work do you see? Right? If I don't see God's work in this world, what work do I see? What do I see? And I see everything that's wrong with this world, of which there is a lot. I see everything that could be better, of which is almost endless, isn't it? I was talking to uh, someone today uh, about... Um, uh, he runs a, runs a business and needs workers to do certain things. When I was down in Houston, I talked to uh, someone who you all know who runs a business and can't get workers. <laughs> he even, uh, even had interviews set up and the people didn't even show. They didn't even show up for their job interview. Uh, what is that? And my, the other guy I talked to today said, even if I do get someone who wants the job, they want like an exorbitant amount of money. And like only work three days a week, probably work from home. You know, like what in the world's going on? People are lazy. Yeah, that's right. People are, you know, they've been, they've had their lives have been too easy. The government's taken too much care of people. All of that. Yeah, welfare state. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All of it's wrong. It's wrong. I get it. When has it ever been right? You can find some history book that tells you when the utopia was found and everybody lived in it or when everything just worked so well in societies and it never has happened. Um, because the world is full of sinners and the people who really do invest their lives in what God designed it to be is always in the minority. And as we see here, they're persecuted on top of it. And so not much gets done that's in terms of the right way on the king, in the kingdoms of the earth. It seemed right that God would want it that way. As if any human kingdom would work out remotely resembling what God's kingdom is going to be, which is perfect peace. So either God is working in this world or he's just ignored it waiting, it, for, waiting for it to either destroy itself or when he returns. But God is actually very much working in this world, and if we invest in other people's lives, we'll see it, just like Paul does. <clears throat> We're all sinners who need God's word to work in us, and that is... <laughs> My depiction of the Holy Spirit inside somebody, which, uh, you know, I'm doing the best I can. Uh, I'm sure that's not what the Holy Spirit looks like. He's usually associated with a dove because that's when Jesus uh, gets, uh, gets baptized and he comes out of the water. That's what John the Baptist sees. So be it. But the, the point is, is that the Word of God works in us. So that's exactly what Paul said. Let's read verse 13 again. He says, for this reason... We also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. Therefore, you accepted it as authoritative. You also accepted it as perfect. If it comes from God, it has all authority. And if it comes from God, it's inerrant or perfect. So it's not from men, it's from God. And therefore, I'm under its authority. And then he says, which also, meaning the word, performs its work in you who believe. Now, we'll get to the you who believe in a second. Uh, we'll see that to be the faithful uh, because it's, well, we'll see it in a second. You who believe, Paul is really referencing people like the Thessalonians 
who put their faith in the word when they heard it. So he's not talking about all believers here. Now, he might be. I, I, should tell, I should say to you that I'm fairly confident he's not talking about all believers. Uh, there's a slim chance that he might be, but does the word of God really do its work in all believers? The answer is no. Right? There's some believers who don't really care for the word of God. If you remember on Friday, that, that was like the category four people who were kind of, you know, they believed in the gospel, but they're not really committed to God's word. Uh, to put their faith in it and to do what the Word of God tells them. Again, we're not perfect and all of us fail, but if it is your heart to know, in your heart to know that the Word of God is God's authority and that I must submit to it and that I seek for it, then Paul promises, as not only here but in many passages, that the Word of God will do its work. The work is what? You know, what is that work? Is to transform our soul into the image of Christ. All right, that's the work that the Word does. It takes time. All right, for those who do love God's Word, they at times, as I have been, we find ourselves frustrated. But we think, well, is it working? I don't seem to be going anywhere. I don't seem to be growing Maybe at times it seems like I'm just going backwards. I'm getting worse. And, you know, is all of that true? The answer is no. If you, if you love God's word and you see it for what it is, as what Paul says here, from God, then the promise is that it will work in you. The word of God is alive and powerful. It works. It does its work. It's God's mind. And so if it's in you and you believe it and you love it, it's changing you. And so we got to be patient. Uh, <clears throat> but imagine, imagine this. this. This idea popped into my head uh, yesterday. Imagine a round table where six people sit. <clears throat> One is a murderer. The other is an adulterer. The other is addicted to drugs. The other, One other is a housewife. Another is a president of a large corporation. And then lastly, there's a seven-year-old child. So you've got a murderer, an adulterer, a drug addict, a housewife, a president of a corporation, kind of straight-laced and neat, you know, and uh, a kid, seven-year-old kid. Now, <clears throat> have they all committed the same kind of sins? Yeah, you know, maybe some things overlap, but for the most part, you know, the murderer has his own problems and the adulterer has his own problems, his or her. Uh, <clears throat> they've done actually vastly different things. They're vastly different. Now, put, put Paul, Paul and Moses and David at a table. Right? Have, what are their sins like? Yeah, there's some overlap, but for the most part, they've done vastly different things. But there are a couple things that are common to them all. Actually, many things that are common to them all. But first and foremost, they're sinners. Even the kid, the seven-year-old kid, he's a sinner. The sins are different, but like all sins do, no matter what they are, whether you've committed murder or you've just been bitter or angry or worried, they rob you of peace and happiness. All sin does. All sin robs mankind of peace and happiness. What is also common amongst them all, as vastly different as they are, is <clears throat> that the solution is the same. You know, there isn't a Bible for the murderer and a Bible for the housewife. Although there are, and now that I think about it, there are Bibles written that are supposedly specific to, you know, uh, they're kind of like devotionals and stuff. But what I mean is God doesn't offer a different solution to the murderer than he does to the housewife. Sin is sin, as God says. Sin is sin to God. So what's common also to them all is the solution. The gospel and the truths that come from the gospel, these, uh, those truths are the doctrines of the Bible. That is the word. The gospel is the word. The gospels and the truth that come from the gospel set people free. The gospel sets you free from sin. 
And we all wonder at this because the Bible is very clear that the gospel sets us free from sin. And we say, well, why didn't my sins all disappear? Why do I still trend towards them? Why do I still, you know, desire them? Why am I still tempted? Well, you are free from sin, so says the Lord. But the truths of Scripture, if they're acted upon, enable you to let go of the past of your sinfulness that you've grown accustomed to. See, the Word of God sets us free. That's what the Lord said. I give you the Word, and the Word of God will set you free, meaning to believers. The Gospel set me free from sin, but I now have to let go of it. It's, it's not... See, the murderer isn't addicted to murder. Just like the drug addict, actually, if he becomes a believer, is not an an addict for his life. The addict becomes a child of God. But the addict has to let go. And like all people are addicted to something. All of us have weaknesses in certain areas. See, when we're saved, the gospel sets us free from it. But the Word of God has got to set us free from what we're holding on to. And that's what it does. It truly does. And it may take a while. The murderer is set free from his anger. Say, for instance, the murderer has an anger problem. The murderer is set free. At the moment of salvation, he's set free from his anger, but he must let it go. He's got to let it go and let the Word of God have its perfect result to wash his soul. The same is true for the addict. What are, what are the sins of the housewife? I don't know. But she's got them. We're all sinners. And salvation sets us free. But the Word of God has to teach us to let go. And that's what, if you put your faith in the Word of God, it's doing its perfect work. It's doing its work. You will find victory. Some people, they get frustrated with it. They, they, they get into the Word of God for a, for a while. They think it's working, and then they leave it when they don't see, like, overnight results. And I think that's a test from God. You know, we stick with God's Word. Why? Because it's doing everything for me. No, not that. Because It actually is, but you're, never gonna, you're not going to notice it all the time. I wonder, God does actually work all this out for us in that he says, this word is from me. So what does that mean? I am accountable to it, not just for the rest of my life, but for all of eternity. I mean, if, if it's the mind of Christ, and it is, if the word of God is, in the beginning was the word, the word was God, right? Then I'm accountable to it. I can't leave it. I must know it. I must submit to it even when it doesn't look like at times it's actually doing anything. I have to stick with it. So, at salvation, the prison... See, when you're born into this world, you're born into a prison. The prison is sin and death. When Christ died for you, when you believed, I should say, when you believed in Christ as your Savior, the prison door was opened. What the Word of God teaches you is how to leave the prison. All right, you're sitting in a prison with a wide open door. But because we've grown so used to the prison, we want to stay in our yucky, gross little cell, which is our sinful lives. We want to stay there because we've grown accustomed to it. And the Word of God goads us to leave. So, Paul has taught them all of this. Yeah, you can imagine that the Thessalonians had never heard anything like this. Right? They're, they're idol-worshiping pagans. Never, they're not even Jews, most of them. They've never heard anything like this. They don't even know such a thing as a Messiah existed. See, at least among the Jews, the Jews knew that there was a Messiah. Their hump to get over is that the Jesus of Nazareth who died on a cross is that Messiah. For the Gentiles, they don't know anything about it. And Paul teaches them. And as we see here, Paul is not interested 
in being honored for what he teaches. And this, this rule is a great reminder to us. Do not seek your own glory. When you do God's work, even when you study God's word, when you pray, the first person who ever revealed to me that when you pray, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his uh, Cost of Discipleship, his book, uh, which is his uh, main work that he's known for, uh, he talks about how when you pray, you can actually kind of have an outer body experience where you're looking at yourself praying and you're proud of yourself for praying so well. You know, your, your vocabulary is great and it's smooth and you're praying, right? You're praying for others. Aren't you awesome? And you're actually admiring yourself for praying. I never thought of that concept. But then as soon as I read it, I was like, uh-huh, you know, it makes perfect sense. We must be very careful. And that's why God teaches us all the time. Who gets the glory? In a thousand different ways, he says it. That all glory goes to him. That is the rule. Uh, for instance, Colossians 3, 4. I went right to this verse because we just exegeted it in my Greek class. And because of that, I know the word revealed here is future passive. Uh, and what passive means is that I don't glorify myself. Passive means I receive what the verb says, the action of the verb. So in a passive voice, I am glorified. I don't glory self. And this is true throughout the scripture. Colossians 3, 4 talks about our return with Christ at the second coming. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed and the context shows clearly that it's the second coming of Christ, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Right? So it's not that I say, well, here's Christ coming back, and I'm up in heaven with him, and I go, all right, everybody out of my way. I'm going back with Christ. No, everything is done for us. You're glorified. You are revealed by God. You know, you're revealed as what? You're in Christ in a resurrection body, in glory. Where did that all come from? Certainly not us. Think about that. That's the truth. Future passive, you will be revealed. Every time God talks about our glory, it's always in the passive voice. We receive it. Uh, let's go, go to 1 Corinthians 2. We always have the Corinthians to thank for showing us how not to do things. I do appreciate them for that. Look at 1 Corinthians 2 1. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. See, isn't Paul saying the same thing there? I am not here seeking my own glory. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It's a great statement. I didn't want to know about your past. I didn't want to know about what you've overcome or what you've gone through or what your dad or your mom did to you. I'm not asking you about that. What I want to know about you is Christ because Christ is a solution whether you're the murderer, adulterer, the housewife, the business executive, or the little kid, you need Jesus Christ to solve your problems. And that's what I want to know. Do you know him? Do you believe in him? Here's his gospel. Here's his good news. Now, do you know who he is? Do you know what he is? I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Then he says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Same as he's saying in Thessalonians. The gospel is not from men. It is from God. The truth, the word of God, is not from men. It is from God. So we see here that you and I, even if we're the great apostle Paul or any of the others who were with him, like Silas, Apollos, Timothy, Epaphroditus, any of these other great men of God and others are great women of God, 
You and I are nothing. We must always remember that. And rejoice in it. I am nothing. Right? It puts all the onus and the burden upon God. Only the Lord Jesus Christ is anything. Only God saves. Only God gives good things. And of course, this doesn't mean that we don't do anything or that we're not smart or wise or intelligent. It just means that what we do, and we do a lot, is we do so with God's Word and God's Spirit. We live by Him. We live in Him. So look at chapter 3, verse 5. Because as we know, the, the Corinthians had all these wonderful ministers. right? They got Paul, they got Apollos, they got Peter who came, and and you know, they have all of these wonderful people who ministered to them. And instead of accepting like what Pe- Peter's gonna teach differently than Paul. And instead of accepting each one as the work of God, what did the Corinthians do? Some of them said, you know, Peter, he's a much better teacher than Paul. Others of them said, are you out of your mind? Paul's a much greater teacher than Peter. And we'll go to the Peter side. The Peter side is Peter was with the Lord. Paul was never with the Lord. Paul only saw the resurrected Lord. Yeah, but Paul's one who's starting a lot of churches and he's an apostle to the Gentiles. And back and forth and back and forth. And they're different. They're definitely different men. They have different ministries. But they have something that's very much in common is that the ministry of Peter and the ministry of Paul and the ministry of Silas and the ministry of you and me are the work of God. Do we see it in one another? And I guarantee you, if you do not invest in other people's lives to help them through prayer, through service, through giving, through sacrifice, then you're not going to see the work of God in others because the only person you're ever going to really see is you. And God's trying to free us from that. So look at uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 5. What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? You who are fighting over us. Servants through whom you believed. What are we, he says? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. Who gave them opportunity? The Lord did. Paul said, I planted. In other words, I started the church. Apollos came later. He was their pastor for a while. Apollos watered, meaning he he continued to teach them. But God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. And so we see here the root of the problem. It's growth in Christianity. It's not The problem with Christianity is not that there aren't enough perfect Christians. Because there are none. The problem in Christianity is there are not enough people who are growing in grace and knowledge. God never wants us, no matter how spiritual you are, God does not want you to stay there. He's constantly growing us. He's constantly changing us. So believers must grow through faith and obedience in God's word. Paul says in Philippians 3.12, not that I have already obtained it or have already become mature. That's what he means by perfect. He knows he's not going to be perfect, but that word perfect also means mature. He's like, I haven't attained as high as I want to be, but I press on. Right? I keep going so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. And by that, he does refer to his election to be holy and blameless in Christ. And he says, I am not there yet. It's astounding that he would admit that while he's writing to the Philippians. He's in prison. This this letter's written <clears throat> in the early 60s, probably. So Paul's been a, a believer for 30 years, roughly. Almost 30 years, maybe 30 years. This is not his first letter. Right? He's in prison. Like when he writes this, he's in Rome. That says he's already been on three missionary journeys. Technically, this trip to Rome, though, as a prisoner, is his fourth. And uh, he says here, I haven't achieved it yet. And you know what Paul is here? 
He's honest. Honest. Do you know why God keeps telling us over and over, Old Testament and New, that I see your heart exactly for what it is? In Psalm 139, it's the passage that a lot of people use for there being life in the womb. But though the passage itself does not address that particularly, when David writes in Psalm 139 that uh, while I was in the womb, you knew me. All right, speaking of God, you knew me, that I am wonderfully made, right? I was in my mother's womb, wonderfully made by you, and you knew me. Why does God keep saying this? Paul, sorry, David says in that very psalm, when I sit down and I get up, you know it. Right? What is that? Is God very much interested in when you sit down and when you stand up? What is Paul, what is, I keep calling him Paul, what is David saying here? It's stated the same way by Paul, that God sees everything. And if God sees everything, don't I have to be honest with him and with myself? It's another big problem with us. We lie to ourselves. Oh, I can do that. It won't be a problem. Really? It's been a problem the last 8,000 times. This time it's different? Yeah. This time I got it. It's different. It's going to be different. Really? <laughs> now, to a, to someone outside of us, look, I am so guilty of this, it's ridiculous. I could tell you story upon story, but that's not why I'm here. I love to lie to myself. Joe, you can do that. It'll be fine. Really? It has never been fine. Um, so why can we do that? Why are we so good at self-deception? Because we're sinners. We're dumb. But what makes us not dumb is the Word of God that we accept as the authority of God. And when we do that, we'll actually find ourselves serving others As Paul says, I'm thankful to God that you Thessalonians have received the word of God as it is from God, rightly so. I'm thankful to him. You see, when God changes you from yourself and you walk out of that prison and boldly say, I am sick and tired of that stupid prison and I want the fresh air. I am done with that old life. God has his many ways of whether it's discipline and warning and more discipline and more pain and more warning and God is patient, patient, patient. And then you'll be changed. And you'll be thankful. You'll be a thankful person. Thankful for everything. Everything. So the Word of God is what we're after here. And the Word of God is the seed. So let's look at it quick. We've got like a few minutes left. Go to Luke 8. That's my barren land and my fruitful picture, which is an apple orchard. It's good-looking apples. We're told to bear fruit, as we know. But in the parable of the sower, in Luke 8, we're going to look at just Luke 8, 11. We see first, uh, in verse 11, now the parable is this. This is Jesus explaining the parable of the sower. The seed is the word of God. All right, so that's super clear. Now, the seed, therefore, is perfect. Can it change? No, it's eternal. Right, so the seed is the word of God, but where the seed is planted... What is what makes the difference in this parable? So those, verse 12, those beside the road are those who have heard and the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they will not believe and be saved. So they heard, they rejoiced in the gospel, but they didn't believe it. Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy and have no firm root. They believe for a while, but in time of temptation they fall away. So the temptation pulls them away. 
So does that mean they stick with the Word of God? No, they stuck with it for a little while, but temptation came in and they were drawn away. They've left. It doesn't mean they can't return, of course. But, you know, I'm getting too... This is what you have to be careful about with parables. You can't get too detailed with them because you can find yourself in false doctrinal ground. Uh, to use a pun that works with parables. So anyway, you went, there's one main idea to a parable, and you want to stick with that. Uh, then in verse 14, the seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they're choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. So the word of God, they were into it. But then, you know, if you're worried about things you're not putting your faith in the word of god if you're seeking riches you're certainly not seeking god if you're seeking pleasures not that there's anything wrong with riches or pleasures but if that's what you seek as your top priority then you're not seeking god and if you're not seeking god you're not seeking his word and that means there's no fruit so then lastly but the seed in the good soil these are the ones who have heard the word and in an honest and good heart, hold it fast. Right? Hold on to it. Why would you hold on to it? Because you know what it is. It's from God. It has authority. It is the most valuable thing in this world. And bear fruit with perseverance. So what is the believer here? The seed is the word of God, but the believer is the type of soil. What type of soil am I? But So what chokes the word is unbelief, worry, riches, pleasures. But with faith, faith in what it is, then I eventually will bear fruit. Now in, uh, let's see here, go to Hebrews. Now, the very last part of 1 Thessalonians 2.13, I'll just read it again. I don't know why I think I'm saving time by not having you turn there. It doesn't take that long. But 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says, For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. This... Uh, in you who believe, is a present participle. Now, the present participle in this context probably means, you can't say for sure, but it probably means that the sentence structure plus the context makes it somewhat sure, is that he's talking about those who continue to believe. That's a present tense generally has this aspect of continuance that they these are believers who continue to put their faith in the Word of God. In other words, they're not, like Jesus said here, temptation draws them away from the Word of God. Uh, worries and riches and pleasures, that doesn't draw them away. But they actually hold it fast. And that's likely what Paul is referring to here. The Thessalonians, plus the context seems to point it that way. At the present tense would mean that they continually put their faith in it. So every time you hear God's word or read God's word, your faith is going into it. Even the same passage you've already known and studied, your faith is going into it. You're learning new things about it because it's alive and powerful. We've all experienced that. So I found this quote from Charles Spurgeon, uh, along with this picture. It's hard to see there, but he, he writes, By perseverance the snail reached the ark. Now, I don't know if there were snails on the ark, but uh, it's a great little quote. Charles Spurgeon was a thoroughly well-known and popular preacher in England. I'm thinking 1800s, early 1800s, around there. I should know that, but I don't. Uh, and so, this is faithful to the word. It reaps its benefits. And that's why I do. I dig the picture of the snail, because... Man, it seems like it takes forever sometimes. You know, for us, forever is 10 years, 20 years. We think, man, that's a long time. <clears throat> and you, you tell your, your neighbors and your family that you know, your church 
gathers four times a week, teaches an hour, a whole hour. I can't, I can't go less. I'm sorry, I just can't do it. A whole hour. I try sometimes. I go for like 55 minutes or 50 minutes, and I never do it. Like, what is wrong with you? Are you just dumb? Are you slow? That's why you need to learn it so much. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We At least we know it, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm a wicked dirtbag, and I'm an idiot, so I need it a lot. Absolutely. Right? But that that is, I mean, from where do you communicate with God? You say in prayer, and most definitely, we've all become better prayers, I think, this year. But, you know, the basis of your prayer is the truth. And if you don't have the truth in the Word of God, what are you talking to Him about? You know, you don't have any real context and substance to your prayer. Uh, So, then, uh, you know, for the sake of time, yeah, so I'm not going over an hour, that's for sure. The, um, I'll get to this tomorrow, but but this passage in Hebrews 4, since you're there, you're in Hebrews 4, uh, look at verse 1, says, Therefore, let us fear while the promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you should seem to come short of it. And the reference is to the Exodus generation. And what was their problem in, in the wilderness? They had no faith. They wouldn't believe. And so he, uh, so it says, for indeed they have had good news preached. Sorry, for indeed we have had good news preached to us, just as they also Exodus. But the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. So as Paul said, the Word of God does its work in you, in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, the Word of God does its work in you who believe. And you who believe, you put your faith in it. You mix the Word of God with faith. And then the writer of Hebrews goes on, and he gets down to verse 13, and he says, there's no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So why does he throw that in there? This is just after he said in verse 12, the word of God is alive and powerful or living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So the word of God sees us thoroughly down deeply, but also God sees us and he says here, there's no creature hidden from his sight. All things are open and laid bare to, to his eyes. So what does that mean? Is that I have to be honest. Lying to God is ridiculously stupid. Right? You can lie to people because people can't read your, your thoughts. But God can. To lie to God is ridiculous. And therefore, if we're honest with ourselves... We have to ask ourselves, do we see the word of God as from men or from God? Do we put our faith in it so as to trust and obey it? And say, I put my faith in the word of God, but if I don't obey what it tells me to do, then do I really? And what is God saying here? Be honest. Be honest with me. Be honest with yourself. Is 1 Thessalonians 2.13 true about you and me? as it was for the Thessalonians. Do I see the Word of God as from God? Because if I don't, if I'm not honest with myself, my whole life could go by, and I'm just settling for something far, far, far less. It's so much less. What the world offers, what the flesh offers, what sin offers compared to what God is offering here in this life, it is so much less. And ironically, I'm paying for it. The life that comes from God that is superior is free. The life that is promised from the world that people are all wrapped up in costs. And it costs quite a bit actually. And so believers can settle for so much less and pay through the nose for it. 
And you see, what is the word? If we, how would anybody know that? The word of God makes it so clear. And therefore, if we see it from the word of God, we're set free from such temptation. So it's up to us to be the good soil. For the good soil, the word of God is going to do its work. All right, now we can pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. And thank you for the gift of your word, the gift of the Spirit within that brings your word to life within us. Thank you that you are who you are and that you work in us. May we see ourselves as nothing, Father, in your eyes. Uh, well, really in our own eyes. But before you, your worshipers and those who see your word as from you, as your authority, your power, your wisdom. We ask in Christ's name, amen.